Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. You know, Pella, they're day one, man. They're, they're, they're day one homies for the Nick Bob Podcast. They've been with me from day one. And, you know, not only is Pella a great company, they got great people there. I went to school with my guy Vince, just a great dude. They're the kind of people you want to do business with. And if you've pushed off a project with some windows or some doors, something like that, now is the time to turn that project into a reality. Because we all know a new set of windows, a new door can do a lot of things for you. can change the look, the vibe, the feeling of your home. It can add value to your home. Plus, it can make your home more energy efficient. Pella checks all those boxes and then some. Pella can provide window and door solutions to any home. And again, working with the people at Pella, second to none. So hit them up online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob podcast is powered by Runza. Runza has an app, and you need to download that app because as a father of two little kids, anything that can increase speed and efficiency when it comes to eating, I'm all for it. And the app does that. I can order food on the app, pop into the restaurant. It's ready for me. It's hot. I'm in. I'm out. I'm now like a finalist for dad of the year or something like that. And it's in large part due to the Runza app and ordering is a breeze on the app. You can customize your order. You can get all your favorites just the way you want them. Plus, you can earn points for rewards in the app. You can score free food from Runza in the app. So go download the Runza app. You can get Runza, get rewards, then get more Runza all on the app. Runza makes it all better. All right, here we go. Uh, it was a wild last week for me with college hoops tipping off, so I apologize for being a little tardy with getting this podcast out. I called five games in five days last week from Tuesday to Saturday, including a trip to Indianapolis for two games in two days at Hinkle Fieldhouse calling some Butler games. So at the end of the week, so I was traveling all day Sunday, so it was just a really, really busy week for me, but I love it. Uh, it feels great. Uh, to be back with a headset on, calling games at Fox. It's crazy. I think it's my eighth year with Fox Sports 1 as a college basketball analyst, and this is certainly a, an exciting time of year for me and all college basketball lovers you know, everywhere with, uh, with hoops being back. And I got a good pod uh, today. It's just me and you. It's, uh, it's Creighton, Nebraska week. So I got thoughts on, on both teams' first two games, and then I'll give some thoughts on the matchup between Creighton and Nebraska, which I will be on the call for. Yours truly and Kevin Kugler will have the call on FS1 on Tuesday at Pinnacle Bank Arena. Uh, so I will, I will give you some thoughts on that. But I want to start with a few Nebraska football thoughts because it, it certainly feels like the dust is still settling with the events of the past week. Uh, with the announcement from Trev Albertson that it, that he's going to retain Scott Frost, and then the subsequent announcement of massive staff changes with four uh, offensive assistants uh, uh, getting fired. So I think for a lot of people, including myself, I'm still kind of in the process of absorbing all of that that took place with last week. And you know, for me, I've I've. As the season has, has progressed, I've kind of felt this entire time when thinking about, okay, how is this, what is that, what's the most likely outcome at the end of this season in terms of Trev and his decision with Scott Frost? As as the season progressed to trend towards, you know, hot seat stuff, popping back up, all those kinds of things. And of the three like of the three outcomes to this season, you could either have Frost fired, Frost comes back with staff changes, or Frost comes back with no staff changes. Like those were the three potential outcomes. I always felt like Scott Frost coming back 
was the most likely outcome in terms of Frost coming back was staff changes. Like, I always thought that was, of all of them, I felt like that's the one I would put my money on. Like, if we were in Vegas and you could bet on it, like, that would have been the minus 110 favorite. And given how things have unfolded, not only this year, but the last three years, I I honestly think this is the best-case scenario for Nebraska. Considering no one wanted it to be four straight losing seasons, but I think what has ailed Nebraska from a broad sense, like if you if you think about the Scott Frost era, what is what is, the issues have been? The offense has never clicked on a variety of fronts. Special teams have been a disaster, and then game management detail stuff have consistently bit Nebraska. And I think there's a chance that with some tweaks and the right hires, all those things could get fixed and addressed with what was decided this past week. Bring in the right offensive coordinator and offensive position coaches, boom, the offense might come around sooner rather than later. You, you could maybe in the midst of some of these hires make somebody a full-time special teams coordinator, and if that's the case – you would think special teams could maybe get to where it's just average instead of a train wreck. Now, what's hard is I think Nebraska, I agree with what Scott Frost has said, the whole line of, you know, we don't have a special special teams problem, we have a specialist problem. I actually think that's – I know people don't want to hear that, and I know there's a lot of people that are like, hey, man, you are the head coach, and it always comes back to you. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, you're, you're probably right. But at the same time, like, Cerny kicked it left when he was supposed to kick it right. And all of a sudden, Connor Culp went from an all-conference kicker to he can't even make an extra point. Like, I, I mean, okay, I don't know. I, I'm, and I don't know if I know enough about special teams. But like, no, actually, you gotta, your gunner's got to be on inside the hashes, and you got to actually no, – I don't know any stuff about that, right? All I can see is punter, kicker, punt returner, kickoff return, right? I think it's more specialist than special teams, but nevertheless, I think someone needs to be special teams coordinator. And again, you could get to where it's just just average and not a train wreck. So to me, again, you could you know bring bring in the right OC, offensive position coaches, offense comes around. Make someone a special teams coordinator. Maybe special teams isn't a train wreck. And then taking some things off Scott Frost's plate with play calling and 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 game planning specifically when it comes to being the de facto offensive coordinator and all that, I think that will allow Scott Frost to zero in on the details of the program and the game itself. Because I do think there might be so fascinated to see what it's like inside the walls and at practice Monday through Friday. Because the one thing I will say is maybe this will free up Frost to be have his hands in and be involved in more things Monday through Friday that'll allow him to be able to then kind of have a voice in things when it comes to Saturdays a little bit more. Like no matter what, when you're when your head there's a difference when your head coach gets on you about something compared to a position coach or an assistant coach or whatever. It, there's just it's just different. And I you know I said this on the pod with Bo when we were talking about this. It used to always not sit well with me when sometimes. You know, someone, and this, I don't think this happened this year, but the first couple of years, someone would, in, in there'd be a post game press conference and there'd be like a bad kickoff or something like that. And someone would ask Frost about that. And he was like, I, I don't know. I didn't see it. I was busy getting the next, next set of plays ready to go. And you're like, ah, oh, man, like you got to, that stuff as a head coach, you got to be on that stuff. So whether it's the stuff Monday through Friday and then even on Saturdays, like 
maybe taking some of the offensive play calling burden off of him will allow him to zero in on the details of the program in the moment, setting things up, and then also the game itself, managing it. So I guess to me, I can see how all those things line up in terms of what has ailed Nebraska, the staff changes, and how all those things could get addressed. I can see where a world where these tweaks, you can really, really zone in on fixing a lot of the things that have been holding Nebraska back. And I get it that it's, you know, it isn't that simple, but it also doesn't have to be that complicated either, you know? Because I do think we tend to go too far in both directions with, with those conversations. We tend to overcomplicate it at times, and then we also tend to make it w- oversimplified at the same time. And so, I, again, I think of all the things that were out there, this was the most likely outcome, retaining Scott Frost with staff changes. I think when you examine what has happened through the first four years, I think with the right tweaks, keeping Frost in charge, like you, you, can, you can fix a lot of things. And I think if you've listened to me, you know, since Scott Frost got here, you, you, you have, and really over the course of this season, you know that I didn't want Frost to be fired. I, didn't, I, I wanted to see Scott Frost come back. And so I just think with, with, some, with some tweaks that I just laid out, I think all those things can make a big difference. And, and most of all, like, to me, they are – there are two things that, that, that I also was thinking about. Like, I think, the, I think they're doing enough things right, the defense, toughness, physicality, effort. There's no quit despite the losses. I think I think they're doing enough things right. And then I think when you combine that with the needing to get out of this this higher fire cycle, I like this decision. I do. I said this on the last podcast with Bo. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. Bo and I kind of gave our raw thoughts on on everything here. I, some may argue bringing back Scott Frost after four years and expecting a different result is insanity. I could argue that staying on this higher fire cycle and expecting a different result is insanity as well. I can see both sides of that. Because I do really sincerely believe that at some point, Nebraska has to try to establish some stability and continuity. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Past 10 years, Nebraska's had four ADs and three head coaches. They've ran almost every offensive and defensive system you can imagine. And I just think that constant change is difficult to overcome. So again, I I think as the dust is settling and we're all trying to kind of process this and and think about it I the more I've thought about it initially is I still feel like I'm everybody it's it's all it's all raw right now I still think it's the best it was the best move to make and by the way that isn't to say that I have my head buried in the sand on this whole thing like this has been wildly disappointing wildly disappointing four years four losing seasons I mean come on right come on 
So don't think that I'm not I'm not seeing exactly what you guys are seeing in a lot of ways. But to me, this was the best option in a less than ideal situation. And that's the other it's naive and silly to think that a shaky situation will present great options. But of all the options, fire frost, keep frost with staff changes, or keep frost with no staff changes, I think keeping frost and making staff changes is the best option. I really believe that. I think I think now the most interesting interesting things to kind of watch unfold in the short term are number one. What what are these final two games going to look like and feel like? Because am I the only one that feels like, and maybe it's the timing of everything, and then the bye week, and then for me basketball starting. Like to me, it it, it feels like the season's over. Doesn't it kind of feel like the season's done? Doesn't it kind of feel like 2021 year four is done? Which is which is not good, and it's a weird feeling when there are two games left. Two two games against the the standard of the Big Ten West over the course of, of its inception. And with four offensive staff members gone and kind of a general sentiment of turning the page to 2022, I don't know what to expect or make of these last two games. I don't know. I really don't. All I know is this. If Nebraska could find a way to beat Wisconsin or Iowa, it would go a long way. I hesitate to just turn on the mic and be like, ah, these games don't matter. Yeah, like anytime Nebraska playing a game, it matters. I don't think they matter as much as they the the these past, whatever it is, 10 games have. But these games still matter. Because, boy, I tell you what. A win would go a long way for morale around the program and inside that program. And a win, beating Wisconsin or Iowa or winning both games, would go a long way for confidence around the program and inside the program. And... Here's what's crazy is I think Nebraska is absolutely good enough to beat either team. I really believe that. I just don't know where they are given all of what has transpired this past week, right? Four offensive staff, uh, offensive coaches gone. Greg Austin, Mario Verduzco, Ryan Held, Matt Lubick. How are the running backs, wide receivers, offensive line? How are the quarterbacks feeling? Then JoJo Doman announces that, you know, he's done – He's gonna. He's dealing with some surgery stuff, and then he's gonna get ready. For, like, I. I don't. It's hard to get a feel for where everything's at. So that's the the thing that's gonna be interesting to track, and then zooming. You know, moving moving past just these next two weeks, and we could get a window into it with what happens maybe even the final two weeks, but. What is going to happen at the quarterback spot moving forward? What is going to happen with Adrian Martinez? I'm recording this on a on a Monday night, and he was asked about it at the Monday Husker press conference, and he said he you know he didn't want to get into all that, and he'll assess it at the end of the year, which is the right thing to say. But I mean, he, I mean, he didn't slam that door shut, right? So I am fascinated with what happens with that situation, because we all know Martinez is talented. And Scott Frost has shown that he is fiercely loyal to that guy. And you watch him and you you observe him over the past four years. I think 
everyone would agree, how could you not root for Adrian Martinez? Like, that guy has represented himself in a first-class, A-plus manner. Great dude, says all the right things, tough guy. He's been banged up all year, high ankle sprain, broken jaw, still playing. But it's complicated because Nebraska hasn't won with him. They're not winning games. And he's made a lot of the critical mistakes in big spots over the course of these past four years. So you wonder what is going to happen. After four years of this, is it best for everyone to say goodbye? Or is it really silly to think that you're going to find someone better and more talented in the portal than him? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Like, I don't know the answer to those questions right now. It's hard to size up because there's a part of me, if you're asking me how I feel about it on, you know, November 15th at at 6.45 p.m., like, there's a part of me that feels like it's in everyone's best interest just to shake hands, hug, and move on. Sometimes situations have run their course and they just need a change. Like, sometimes people people need to, to turn the page. I, I could see how Nebraska needs some new blood at quarterback and a fresh start at quarterback. And I could even see for Adrian Martinez. I could see how Martinez needs a change of scenery and a fresh start somewhere else to finish up his quarterback career. But I also have a hard time, I can have a hard time envisioning finding someone in the transfer portal that's more talented than Martinez next year. So it's a challenge. But I was thinking about this on my flight yesterday, leaving Indy. The reality is, I think the answer lies like to all those questions. The real answer lies in the mind of whoever is the new offensive coordinator. I think that this decision and everything with Martinez, like I think that is the new OC's decision. I really believe that to be true. I don't think this is Frost's call, as crazy as that sounds. Because to be honest with you, I think that would be one of the questions I would have as an OC, potentially. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go onto Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. The bottom line is, you're think about this. You're going to have to convince. You're going to have to convince an offensive coordinator to come in and understand the circumstances that they don't have this long runway is gone. They need to win right away, or they're going to be gone after next year. 
So this is a hit-the-ground-running situation. They are in a win-now mode. And for an offensive coordinator to hop on board that situation, I think the number one thing you got to give them is the freedom to pick their quarterback. And in some ways, if I were the offensive coordinator and the hiring process was Scott Frost, I would like, let's say I wasn't, let's say I'm an OC and I don't want it to be Martinez. I would say, okay, I'm interested. Do I have the final say on whether Martinez is my quarterback or not? Do I get to choose who the quarterback is? I think that's a totally fair thing for whoever you're bringing on as OC to to ask. Because if listen, if this OC, if this new offensive coordinator, if he wants Martinez, great. If he wants to handpick his own guy, I think you got to let him do it. Because you know this is harsh to say, but in a lot of ways, Scott Frost may be the head coach still. But he's kind of lost the right to make the calls on the offense and at the quarterback spot right now. Now that sounds weird, but like like Steve Sibble put in his column, Scott Frost, in essence, kind of fired himself this past week as the offensive coordinator. He kind of fired himself. So when that's the case, you got to operate with that school of thought. I think the future of the quarterback spot rests in the mind of whoever is hired as the new offensive coordinator. In this new, in this cycle here, the most important hire for Frost in the next few weeks and the guy that could sink or swim this thing next year in all reality is the offensive coordinator hire. This is a huge hire. And then within that, oftentimes the success of an offensive coordinator lies at the quarterback spot. I think you let that guy make the call. If he wants to get a new quarterback, great. If he wants Martinez to come back and run his offense, great. If he wants an open competition at quarterback between Martinez and another guy in the portal, great. But it's the new offensive coordinator's decision, in my opinion. That's how I see it as of November 15th. That is going to be really, really, really interesting to track. One more thought before I get to Nebraska and Creighton Hoops here. To cherry pick and drive home my stance on Nebraska needing to establish some continuity, continuity and stability, there I said to people, I'm willing to call out when you know you're cherry picking and isolating stats in a vacuum or things in a vacuum or one thing. Like to cherry pick and drive home my stance on Nebraska needing to establish some continuity and stability. I was thinking also about this. Well, as I get into this, first of all, it's going to be nice. It's sometimes kind of nice to know that you aren't the only school or the only fan base or the only people going through a tough stretch, you know? Like, sometimes it's nice to know, like, oh, you're dealing with this dude? Oh, great. Got it. Yeah. But here are a few cautionary tales of the constant higher fire the no stability or continuity cycle of the constant wanting to just run the run your guy out of town and thinking the next guy coming in is going to be Bear Bryant or Tom Osborne or Nick Saban. Think about some of these schools. Tennessee. Since Philip Fulmer, so since the 2008 season, they are on their fifth head coach. Lane Kiffin, one year gone. Derek Dooley, three years fired. Butch Jones, five years fired. Jeremy Pruitt, three years fired. And now they're on Josh Hype. 
Think about Texas. I don't know how anybody couldn't have watched Kansas upset Texas and not really think about Texas in this way. Texas since Mick Mac Brown. So since Mac Brown left, so since 2013. Charlie Strong, three years fired. Tom Herman, four years fired. Steve Sarkeesian, year one, struggling. They've lost five in a row, including a home loss to Kansas where they got like 57 points hung on them or whatever it was. Texas. Florida. Think about Florida. Since Urban Meyer, so since the 2010 season, three different head coaches. Will Muschamp, four years fired. Jim McElwain, fired in the middle of third year. Dan Mullen, he's now in year four, likely going to get fired. Was in a dogfight with Samford over the weekend. That's Florida. Miami. Think about Miami. Since Larry Coker, starting in 2007. Randy Shannon, fired. Al Golden, fired. Mark Rick, three years out. Now Manny Diaz. USC, since Pete Carroll, so starting in 2010. Three different head coaches, couple of interim head coaches for fairly long stretches. I mean, Lane Kiffin fired after four games in year four. Steve Starkeesian gone after a year and a half. Clayton Helton takes over. After five, six years, he gets fired two games into this season. Not to mention, Not to mention, he seemingly felt like he's been on the hot seat for the entire time he's been there. Hasn't it kind of felt like that? Like, it feels like... Every year, Clay Helton has entered in to be like, you know who's on the hot seat? Clay Helton. It's like, didn't they just hire that guy? Like, oh, yeah, but he's on the hot seat. I could go on and on, but you get the point. I'm sitting there watching Texas lose to Kansas, and you're like, man, the answer? They swore Tom Herman was the answer. They swore Charlie Strong was the answer. Looking at Florida, they swore Dan Mullen was the answer. And these are these are Texas, USC, Florida, like top five, top ten jobs. Some of those people they constantly have succumbed to this idea that the grass is greener and that the next guy is going to be the guy. It's a tricky deal. I'm just bringing that up because we we tend to just only, you know we get tunnel vision on your situation and all that stuff and thinking like, oh, I just got to, you just hire fire until you find the right guy. It's like, that's real easy to say from when you're on your couch watching games on Saturday. And I just think the more you hire and fire, the harder it gets to overcome that. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that those are, I mean, when you list best jobs in college football, you're listing a lot of those Texas, USC, Florida, you're listing those schools. And one of the reasons they have, have not been able to get it going is because they keep chopping themselves off off the knee. I'm not necessarily saying that all those names that I just threw out there that were coaches that were fired, that all got they all deserve to stay, but I'm simply pointing out, look at that. Look at that. So this is why I can I hammer home at some point Nebraska has to get off of this continuous cycle of higher fire higher fire and try to establish some continuity and some stability. You now have it with Trev. This is where Trev wants to be. He's not looking to retire and go back to his ranch. Looking at you Bill Moose. He's not looking for the next thing. 
Like, this is where he wants to be. You're going to finally get stability there. It feels like finally, between 10 Carter, Ronnie Green, and the AD, everyone's in a line. And this is where Frost wants to be. He's not looking for the next thing. Like, you got a chance to really build something that has excellent stability and will, will manufacture great continuity for years and years and years to come. That's how I see it right now. That's how I see it. Okay, let's let's transition and talk a little hoops here. It's great Nebraska be I'm I'm pumped, man. Huskers are going to host the Blue Jays Tuesday night Pinnacle Bank Arena. I'm on I'm on the TV call FS1 with Kevin Kugler and I'm pumped, man. Pinnacle Bank Arena should be rocking. I am like the second I got my assignments and saw that game, I've been looking forward to calling that game every day. I've been like texting Kugler every day about it. We are so pumped. But let, let's let's get into both these teams here because we're one week into the season. Um, both teams have played two games. And let's be honest, both teams have struggled, right? Creighton is 2-0 and but needed a big second-half rally to beat Arkansas Pine Bluff at home. And then they won a defensive grinder to beat Kennesaw State 51-44, to a game that saw Creighton go 1-for-19 from three. So Creighton's not, you know, been a buzzsaw. And then Nebraska has certainly struggled. They're one and one, and they could easily be zero and two. Really struggled against both Western Illinois and Sam Houston State. They lost basically at the buzzer to Western Illinois, and were down at half to Sam Houston State, and and had to rally to pull away and and win that game. So these two teams haven't played great yet, and these are two teams that are still finding themselves. Right. Both these teams working in a lot of new, a lot of new faces, a lot of young freshmen, a lot of tran- like both these. This isn't like Creighton of last year where it's all the same dude. Like both these teams are working in a lot of new pieces. So, it, which in some ways makes this game hard to size up. It's it does. I'll get into that in a second. But when you look at at both teams, watching film on them. I'll start with Nebraska. So I was I I downloaded both of Nebraska's games and I was watching them on my flight yesterday from from Indianapolis back home. And God, I wrote like two pages of notes watching both games. I wouldn't want to publish those notes because I keep I was pretty harsh on a few things. But here here are a few of of my thoughts. First of all, uh, I just think from a broad sense, it was huge that they rallied and found a way to win the Sam Houston State game. It was that's I get it. It's like. The, it's a bit that's huge they did that. Because much like the football program under Frost, like oftentimes a big part of building a program up is just building confidence from winning games. And each of the first two years under Fred Hoiberg, they've stubbed their toe out the gates and lost by games early against low to mid-major teams, and has kind of taken the wind out of their sails before the season ever even got like off the ground. Year one. They lost to UC Riverside and Southern Utah to start the season at home. Year two, they lost to Nevada at home. And now year three, they open out the season and lose to Western Illinois at home. And listen, they need they needed to they they needed to win that Sam Houston State game to start building some positive momentum. So I want I think it's it's huge that they they 
found a way to, to clo- close that game out. And I still believe when you look at Nebraska's roster, they got a lot of intriguing, interesting pieces. I still see some potential in this group. But so far, they've, they've had issues, right? Like, that's no, that's not necessarily breaking news. And to me, from a broad sense, like, their, their three main issues have been rebounding, assists, and then just overall execution on both ends. Like, rebounding, they've gotten pounded on the offensive glass by, by two low major teams. Just, you know, I mean, you look at it. They, they get out-rebounded. They give up 16 offensive rebounds to Sam Houston. And they, you know, they give up 23 offensive rebounds to Western Illinois. It's not exactly, you know, Michigan and Purdue. Then the assists are a little perplexing from the standpoint of you watch them play in that Colorado in that exhibition game and the ball movement was great. Nebraska had 17 team assists in that game against Colorado, the exhibition game where they blew the Buffaloes out. Then Nebraska turns around they have six assists against Western Illinois as a team, six. And then they end up having 10 team assists against Sam Houston. But the assists and the ball moon pin a problem. And then just execution. I know that's broad, but it's like I just kept writing that down. Like tons of mistakes on the defensive end and just simple stuff. Like fighting through a screen, communicating on a on a switch. And then offensively, they just haven't looked crisp on a variety of fronts. And when let me unpack those things a bit. Because I think the I think the first thing with the rebounding issue is this. Nebraska is an undersized team and not a very physical team. There's not, right? They don't have a bunch of, you know, they don't have a, a Travion Williams. They don't have a Hunter Dickinson. You know, they don't got just like a badass motherfucker in, at, the, at the four, at the five, just kick your ass, big, physical dude. They, they don't have a bunch of guys like that, which is fine. You can, you can win. You don't have to have a bunch of, you know, Ben Wallace's to, to go win. But when that's the case, your margin for error is slim on defense and on the glass. When that's the case, you got to make up for those issues, not being uh, being undersized and not being super physical and strong. You got to make up for those issues by playing with great communication, great fight, great energy, and all five guys thinking about rebounding. Too often in the first two games of the season, I didn't see those things. Guys leaking out, not gang rebounding, communication mistakes leading to scrambles where you're not in position to rebound. When I watched, you know, let me give you an example. When I watched uh, Doug McDermott's senior year team at Creighton, that team was ridiculously undersized. Hell, they were... They were undersized and not a very physically imposing team at all. I mean, they their their starting four and five were Ethan Roggy and Doug McDermott, both six foot seven guys. You know, then they got Gibbs at six foot five. Who's you know, I mean, Gibbs isn't necessarily, you know, he he's not <laughs> he's not necessarily the most physically imposing guy in the world. Austin Chapman, six foot maybe. James Managa, six two, skinny. 
But again, you're you're four and you're five, two perimeter oriented six seven guys. So how did they go through the Big East and get a three seed? And well, how did that happen? That team fought. Man, did they fight. Because they, I think the first step in that is when they looked in the mirror, they were real with themselves. Ethan Rogge looked at himself in the mirror and was like, I'm not a big enough guy to think I can just act like I can just go out there and think I'm just going to rip down eight boards by not busting my Like They were real with themselves. I think there's a, there's a part of Nebraska that needs to look in the mirror and realize, like, eh, we're, not, we're not the most big physical team in the world, so we better fight our ass off. Because that Doug and that Doug Doug Senior team, they were they flew around. Their communication was excellent. They were a gang rebounding team because they had to be. I think Nebraska needs to kind of think the same way, especially when they play small with Bryce McGowan's at the four. I mean, Bryce is Bryce still has a high school kid's body. Now he's got a he's his offensive game is off the chain and we'll talk about that but like he's still he's still skinny Alonzo Verge is skinny but when they play small and they put Bryce at the four which I don't know how much they'll do now with Lat back in the equation and they're trying to play Breidenbach and Andre at the same time a little bit like I don't know how much they will play small but when they do man they better put on their hard hats and fight and Bri- and thinking of Lat I do think it's I think Lat man. Coming back will help things a bit because he's does at least have some height. He's six nine, but he's not. No one's confusing Lat Mayan with you know, with the most physically, but you know, with with uh, Patrick Ewing, right? He's not the most physical guy in the world, and I do think playing Eduardo Andre more will help too because you know he's a legit you know six eleven seven footer guy. But still, the core guys of Derek Walker, Verge, Trey, and Bryce McGowan's, Wilcher, Tominaga, those guys are not big dudes. Those guys got to be locked in on that end of the floor and play with a little bit more fight and urgency. The other thing with the rebounding thing, sticking with Doug's senior year's team to, to prove to drive home a point. Sometimes your transition offense can be a huge deterrent for people to even send guys to the offensive glass. A lot of teams playing Creighton over the years, but especially Doug's senior year's team, were so afraid of Creighton's transition offensive game that instead of sending three or four guys to crash the offensive glass, they were sending four guys back on defense because they didn't want to give up easy shots and layups with how lethal and fast and relentless Creighton was slash is in transition. I think that element could help Nebraska too. And I I think that element needs to improve for Nebraska. It's transition offense. The better Nebraska is in transition, the more fear they put in the opponents in transition, the more teams may think twice about sending so many guys to the offensive glass. It didn't appear like Western Illinois or Sam Houston were afraid of Nebraska's transition offense at all. And Nebraska needs to execute their 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 pace and their their 
tempo and their transition offense better. I told this to Hoiberg when he's on my pod, and, and he agreed. I think there is a difference. There is a fundamental difference between playing fast and just taking fast shots. Let me repeat that. I think there is a fundamental difference between playing fast and taking quick, fast shots. To me, Nebraska doesn't play fast right now. They just take fast shots. There's a difference. So I think they got to tighten that up too. And again, I know it's, I think one thing that could help alleviate some of their rebounding issues is if they got to where they put the fear of James Naismith in who they're playing in transition. Because I'm telling you, I can't, I can't even tell you how many coaches meetings I've sat in on when I'm doing games for Fox and I'm, I'm talking to Chris Mack at Xavier or Laval Jordan at Butler or Kevin Willard at Seton Hall or Jay Wright at Villanova. Or, and we, I talk to them about you know defensive game plan, all that stuff, and they're like, man, we, we, can't, we can't get caught crashing the glass too much. We got to get back. We're sending four guys back. We cannot mess around and not have multiple bodies back off defensively because they are so good in transition. So I think I think that's something that could help Nebraska too. And some of that stuff leads into a, you know, some about their transition offense. Some of the some of that leads me into the ball movement and assist stuff. I actually think what you, the first two games, I think you saw the importance of Alonzo Verge. Both ways. Because I, I wrote this down in my notes. I really think when, when Verge plays well, Nebraska plays well. When he struggles, Nebraska struggles. You know, this whole thing is like they go as he goes. Like, I think there's a little bit of Nebraska goes as Verge goes. Don't get me wrong. Bryce McGowns is their most talented player. But I think Alonzo Verge is, is, their, is arguably the most important player. They need Alonzo Verge to really run the show and set the table for people. Because I said it, I said it before the season. I was so curious what Verge at the point guard would look like. Because, first of all, I watched him at Arizona State. He's wired to score, he's got a scorer's mentality. And he didn't run the point at Arizona State. I think so many people don't get that. He was not the primary ball handler at Arizona State, Remy Martin was. So it's this is going to take this is going to be a process for Verge to learn how to run the show, be the primary ball handler and not necessarily think about scoring first. And the reality is, I think Alonzo Verge reverted a bit in the first two games of the season to his Arizona State mindset. He was in score 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 mode. And, you know, basketball is funny in the way of, like, in, in basketball, your point guard sets the tone in a lot of ways. Ball movement can be contagious. And when your point guard is in score mode, in hunt shot mode, that can be contagious to the other four guys as well. And Nebraska had way too many possessions in their first two games that saw no passes or one pass. Now, I thought it got better in the final 10 minutes of that Sam Houston game. But up until that final, you know, eight, nine, seven minutes of that Sam Houston game, I honestly thought you could have counted on one hand 
the amount of times Nebraska had a possession that had one or two ball reversals through two games. Nebraska's got to do a better job of just sharing the ball and moving the ball better. The, the possessions where they moved it, they got they scored at a really high clip. And I think Verge sets the tone for a lot of that. So there's going to be a process for Verge at that point guard spot. And there's going to be a process of this team finding themselves and working in a bunch of new pieces. Most importantly, their leading scorer in Bryce McGowan's and their quarterback of their team in Verge. Speaking of Bryce McGowan's, I mean, geez, you watch Bryce. I'll be real. Like, he needs to tighten up a lot in his game, especially on the defensive end. But, man, scoring is easy for him. Anybody that watched those two games, it's just easy for him to score. I mean, the guy is a true freshman. His body still hasn't popped. You know, like, he's still kind of got that, like, a high school body. And dude just put up 25 and 29 in his first two games. And did it pretty efficiently. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza. I got to talk to you guys about something. The Eagles ran Philly special in Super Bowl 52, right? Remember that trick play? It was incredible. It was amazing. Well, Runza has huddled up, and they got their own version of Philly special. How about a Philly-style Runza? Oh, man. For a limited time only. You can get a Philly style Runza. Everything you love about a Philly combined with everything you love about a Runza wrapped up into one. So if you got a hunger as big as the Sixers center, Joel Embiid, you need the Philly style Runza. You got green peppers, grilled onions, steak seasoning, Swiss cheese, and of course, juicy, delicious, succulent steak all wrapped into a Runza. Oh, my goodness. The combination of steak and Runza. I mean, that's kind of like the combination of Adrian Martinez and Samari Torre. It's just fantastic. So get your Philly game right. Get your Philly-style Runza game right. Again, this is for a limited time only. So head out to Runza today and get a Philly-style Runza. Runza makes it all better. It's weird in basketball. Some guys can play out of their minds and never score more than 16, 17, 18 points. Bryce McGowan's made getting 25 look like relatively effortless and easy. It's weird. There are certain guys you you felt like, oh, man, this that dude played great. And you'd look down and they'd be like, they had 13. You're like, man, it felt like he was had a lot more than that. And then there's some guys like, I didn't think he played great tonight. And you look down and he had 24. Like Bryce is the latter. Scoring is just easy for him. It'll be fun to watch him progress, man, because he he is he's an exciting scorer. Last note, one of the things Nebraska has done a pretty good job of getting to the free throw line. That's one way they've made up some of the second chance points and the and just the the offensive rebounds that they've given up. They've outscored, outscored their first two opponents forty nine to fourteen from the free throw line. So that's good. That's good because, you know, Hoiberg's an analytics guy and it's, you know, he's threes, layups, free throws. Threes, layups, free throws. They've gotten to the free throw line. Okay, let's talk about Creighton for a second. It's also been a really interesting two games for Creighton, which again, like Nebraska, is finding themselves. And Creighton is really a starting over, more so than Nebraska. Creighton has, here's a nugget for you, Creighton returns 18% of minutes played 
That's third fewest in the nation and the fewest among all power conference teams. So no power conference team returns fewer minutes than Creighton. So again, it's going to take some time for this team to gel. It's going to take time for the players to get comfortable, especially the young guys. And it's going to take time for Greg McDermott to figure out lineups and rotations. And and so far, one of my biggest concerns has kind of reared its ugly head on offense right away. Because outside of the, the second half against Arkansas Pine Bluff, Creighton's first game, Creighton has struggled offensively in particular from the three-point line. I said it in my preview pod, and I'll say it again, because as weird it is to, as it is to stay about a Creighton team, I'm not sure how good of a three-point shooting team this is. Because how about this? Let's, here's how Creighton's three-point shooting has, has been so far. The first half of the first game against Arkansas Pine Bluff, Creighton went 0 for 14 from three. Then the second half against Pine Bluff, they go 7 for 11 from three. Then in the Kennesaw State game, they go 1 for 19 from three. Think about that. 0 for 14, 7 for 11, 1 for 19. And that's unbelievable. Right? Like, so outside of the second half of the Pine Bluff game, Creighton is, what, 1 for 33 from three? Creighton. Ugh. So a lot of a lot of Creighton's issues start there. Like, making shots has a way of changing how, the look of everything, right? And to be fair, Nebraska's not shot it well from three either. They're, that's a real part of it, too. But Creighton's not shot it well. I think, you know, other things, like, I think the pace has been solid, especially in the second half of that Pine Bluff game. In the second half of the Pine Bluff game, they look good. If you just watch that second half of the, their first game, you go, shit, Creighton's good. But if you watch the first half and then a lot of the Kennesaw State game, saw a lot of potential issues. One of them being Creighton's, Creighton's ball handling and, and ball security has been a little shaky. Nemhard's turned it over a lot, but Nemhard's been solid. He's been great. I'm all in on Nemhard at point for Creighton. But, the, you know, Creighton had 19 turnovers against Pine Bluff and 14 turnovers versus, Ken- versus Kennesaw State. And both those teams, again, low major teams. This isn't Villanova and Seton Hall we're talking about here. They both heated Creighton's ass up. They got into the ball, got underneath the ball handlers, got physical with them, pushed everybody out. They were Creighton's running offense 28 feet from the basket. They denied wing entry passes. And the young Creighton guards struggled a bit. So the offense has been a little disjointed because of the turnovers and, and missing threes. But again, that it's crazy. That second half versus Pine Bluff. Here, here, think about this. The second half versus Pine Bluff, they look really impressive. Creighton scored 52 points in the second half against Arkansas Pine Bluff and shot 75% from the floor, which was their best shooting half since February 14th, 2012. But then they turn around and score 51 points total in the Kennesaw State game in a grinder win. And that 51 points in a home win is the fewest points scored since 1986 for Creighton. So it has been an interesting two games for Creighton. They could, Creighton could easily be one and one right now. Kennesaw State really pushed them. Certainly Pine Bluff had them down almost double digits at half. 
the good news is I think Creighton's defense and rebounding has been pretty consistent, especially in that Kennesaw State game. They showed a lot of maturity in that game. They couldn't throw it in the ocean, and they still defended and focused and fought for 40 minutes. When you go one for 19 from three and you're turning it over and you're not Christian, I mean, oftentimes that can impact your energy and want you on the other end, but that didn't happen. I think that says a lot about the, the group. Like I said, I, I really like what I've seen from Ryan Nemhard. He he's he's the real deal. He's been pretty solid. He turned it over. He had six turnovers in the first game, but he also had ten assists. There's a lot on his plate. Alex O'Connell has been really good. His best two games of his college career, in my opinion, have been the last two games, especially the Pine Bluff game. And then I think Ryan Hawkins has been solid too. But speaking of Ryan Hawkins, it was so interesting in the Kennesaw State game. I did that game on TV, and Greg McDermott calls a timeout up three. I think it was 47-44 with about a minute left in the game. And I, I said on the broadcast, where's the ball going? Like, for the past few years, it was going to Marcus Zagorowski or or maybe Tysha Alexander, but you knew it was going there. The Three, four years ago, it was going to Marcus Foster. You know, eight years, eight, nine years ago, it was going to Doug McDermott. You knew where it was going. But in that spot, I'm like, where where does does he want to put the ball in his true freshman point guard's hand? Does he want to put it like where's it going? And Greg McDermott ends up drawing a little cross screen action to get Hawkins, Ryan Hawkins, a post up, and he scores. I thought that was telling. That that Coach Mack had the the confidence to go to Hawkins, and I thought it was it was interesting that that he converted. So the first two games, man, Creighton has had their fair share of issues. Three point shooting, some sloppiness on offense. There have been some bright spots too. Defense was good in game two, in particular. Creighton showed some flashes in the second half of that Pine Bluff game where they just were a buzzsaw. But it's been a very, very interesting two-game stretch for Creighton. So with with this game, Creighton and Nebraska. First of all, you know it's it's obviously it's a series Creighton has dominated recently. Creighton has won eighteen of the last twenty-two regular season games against Nebraska. Creighton has won eight of the last nine meetings against Nebraska. All eight wins coming by double figures, by the way. But what's interesting is with all the new pieces on both sides, you're you're going to have so many new faces in this game for the first time. Like, you think about with Nebraska, Bryce McGowans, Alonzo Verge, Derek Walker, C.J. Wilcher, Kese Tominaga, Wil- Wilhelm Breidenbach, Keon Edwards, all didn't play in this game a year ago. Trey McGowan's a lot. Mayen played in the game, but that's it. And there was no crowd last year, so it was kind of weird. Nobody's really experienced this game. And then for Creighton, you know, Ryan Nemhard, Arthur Kaluma, Ryan Hawkins, Trey Alexander, Keyshawn Fiesel, J- Christophilus, Rati, Anjonikashvili, Alex O'Connell, they didn't play in this game. Kalkbrenner, he played in the game last year, but again, no fans. Shreve Mitchell played in the game, in this game last year and the year before, saw some of the fans, but Shreve Mitchell... Might not play because he's still recovering from that foot injury. So it's just interesting when you look at it like that. But here's the thing. 
if those if those players don't know, they're going to know when they get to the arena because the, the, the crowd is going to infuse juice and energy into both teams. And I'll start there. I'll be really interested in how Creighton handles the crowd because nobody outside of Alex O'Connell has been in an environment like this. O'Connell's been in Duke Carolina games, so he'll have an idea of what it's like. But none of Creighton's freshmen have seen anything like this. Ryan Hawkins and playing Division II ball has never seen anything quite like this. Kalkbrenner played in front of basically no fans all last year. So how does Creighton handle the crowd? How do they handle the environment? And that's where Sharif Mitchell's status is big. And there's a maybe that he plays, but it's a big maybe that that he plays. Even if he like, even if he can play, I mean, he's got to be really limited. Yeah, he would certainly make a big difference. So the first thing I'll be watching for is how Creighton handles the crowd. I'm telling you, it's different. I'm not. This probably the bit. This will probably be the toughest environment they play in all year. And in terms of handling the crowd, that impacts ball handling and decision-making, two things that Creighton's kind of struggled with at home against Pine Bluff and Kennesaw State. Second thing I'll be watching for is obviously the glass. You know, it's interesting. Creighton isn't usually isn't a team that crashes the offensive glass. But with the makeup of this team, and and the fact that Nebraska struggled rebounding the ball, my guess is Creighton's going to be sending Arthur Kaluma, who's a big 6'7 live body, Keyshawn Fiesel, who's a big 6'9 live body, Alex O'Connell, who's a 6'5, probably the best vertical athlete on the team, Ryan Kalkbrenner, who's 7'1, and Ryan Hawkins, who's a physical, kind of has a nose for the ball. I bet those guys are going to, they're going to be crashing the glass. Can Nebraska rebound? Can Nebraska do what they didn't do against Sam Houston and Western Illinois and keep the opponent off the glass. That'll be interesting. The third is going to be transition both ways. Fred Hoiberg said it in his Monday press conference about you know the, the, these Creighton games. He said the last two years, their biggest issue in against the Blue Jays has been transition, transition defense. And a lot of that is incumbent upon Nebraska, right? Like, when I look at Trent, like, can Nebraska sprint back and get sorted out in transition, stop the ball, protect the basket? Because Nemhard is coming, and Creighton is coming. Nemhard is really good and really fast in the open floor. And then maybe can Nebraska, can Nebraska run on Creighton a little bit? Can Nebraska rebound and then get that thing outletted and run? Because Bryce McGowan's, Trey McGowan's, with space and ahead of steam, tough, right? Like, outlet, pitch ahead, Bryce McGowan's with with a guy backpedaling, tough. Can they, can they do that? Can Nebraska do it? Fourth is going to be the three-point line. Both teams want to take a lot of threes. We know that. Creighton has struggled from three. Nebraska struggled from three. I think Nebraska has capable guys. Creighton showed for a half that they can get hot. Who steps up and makes more shots from three? 
And the fifth and final thing I'll be watching for is, is the point guard matchup. I really think whoever wins between Verge and Nemhard will put their team in a great spot to win the game. Both teams rely so heavily on the point guard spot to produce and distribute and set the pace and set the table that whoever plays better between those two guys likely means their team is playing better. So the last thing I'll be watching for is the point guard spot. So it's going to be a fun game. In review, I'm going to be watching for how Creighton handles the crowd. Second thing I'll be watching for is, is the rebounds, particularly the offensive glass for Creighton. Can you know Nebraska rebound defensively at all? Third is going to be transition. In particular, can Nebraska slow down Creighton? Fourth is going to be the three-point line both ways. And then the fifth thing I'll be watching for in particular is going to be that point guard matchup. Who plays better? Who wins between Verge and Nemhard? Going to be a fun game, a fun atmosphere. I cannot wait to be on the call. Reminder, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, just click that subscribe button. It helps me out a ton. Also, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube page. Make sure you just look it up, Nick Bob Podcast, on the YouTube. Uh, on, on YouTube. Subscribe. Helps me out a ton. Helps me out a ton. You can email me, nick at nickbaugh.com. Appreciate you guys downloading, listening to the pod. We'll catch you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. A Huda Media Production.